Good morning. So a couple of uh, confessions to make before we get started. Um, I love you all dearly. I've been sick this week, so I'm not going to shake your hand or hug you. We'll just wave from a distance, but you don't want what I've had. The second thing to confess to you is I had to write two sermons this week, one for today and one for tonight, and I was working on them simultaneously. But this one got too long to preach tonight. So I, this message was supposed to be tonight's message, but it's so long that you're going to hear it. And then... <laughs> Tonight's message will have nothing to do with Christmas Eve, but that's the luck of the draw. <laughs> Let's open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the time that we can gather together to praise you through your Son, Jesus, by the agency of your Holy Spirit indwelling us and in your church. This Sunday, as we prepare our hearts to remember the coming of Christ, uh, entering into flesh, into the creation, into the time stream, into our world, into humanity. It's an amazing thing. We will never understand this union, not through eternity. But I pray, God, that we celebrate it this day and we give you thanks as we contemplate it and that you will speak to our hearts through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther, who was the 16th century reformer, is probably credited as being the first one to put lights on a Christmas tree. Now, the Germans had a long-standing tradition of bringing greenery in during the wintertime, so there was nothing new about having a tree in your house. But Martin Luther had this idea that he wanted to teach his kids about the stars of Bethlehem. And as he was walking home one night, he observed these stars. He came up with the idea of putting candles on the tree to represent these stars. In 1841... The first Christmas tree in England came when Queen Victoria's German husband brought this idea to uh, England, and they set up the first uh, Tannenbaum Christmas tree in Windsor Castle. And because of the tree was decorated with these uh, artistic ornaments, the richly uh, ornamented tree, they decided, they decided to put uh, candles on it to, so that you would be able to see the ornaments. That was the point of putting the candles on the tree there. And the idea caught on through England, and then people started carrying the idea out of decorating their tree with candles. This idea then made it to the United States. And then in 1856, uh, President uh, Pierce had brought the first lit Christmas tree into the White House. Now, when we first moved here, there was an elder by the name of Gary Dunlap. His wife was Swiss. And they put lit candles on the Christmas tree. We went over there to watch it, and sure enough, they're real candles, like the one we're going to be using tonight at our candlelight service. They had them stuck all over this tree. Now, the reason that this, uh, this surprised me was, in my family, we always had a real Christmas tree. And the tradition at New Year's Day was to burn the thing in the fireplace. And I was astonished how fast a dry Christmas tree will almost explode into flames. When they put those candles on a Christmas tree, I can just imagine how many house fires were started by that. Did it take off in just a, a second? Well, things got a lot better in 1882 with the invention of the electric light bulb. So in 1839, Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb, and in 1880, 1879, the light bulb was invented. In 1882, Thomas Edison's friend, Edward Hibbard Johnson, came up with the idea of putting lights, electric lights, on a Christmas tree. 
So he hand-strung these uh, 40, no, 80 lights, and he put them in these globes, uh, red, white, and blue, and he mounted them all over his tree and put the tree on a revolving stand, and he lived in New York City. So he put this revolving Christmas tree with these 80 red, white, and blue lights in front of his um, parlor on uh, 16th Street, 36th Street in New York, and people would walk by because it was, it was in the city. People would walk by and see this revolving Christmas tree with the lights. And again, the idea got caught on. People wanted to add electric lights to their Christmas tree too. Edison and Johnson saw this as a wonderful way of making money, so they started selling strings of Christmas lights for $12. Now, that might not sound a lot, but that's equivalent to $450 for a string of Christmas lights today. Aren't you glad it's gone down? I mean, after Christmas, like on Tuesday, you can go down and find them for like two or three bucks for a string of Christmas lights. So imagine 450 bucks for a string of Christmas lights. Now, Christmas, as we all know, is the, is the season of lights. Homes, uh, cities, streets, they're all decorated with these, these ornaments and, and uh, with, uh, with lights. And, and I love the Christmas lights. That's the best symbol of Christmas to me. And I realized that <clears throat> I realized that the ornaments and the trees and the lights, along with the sleighs and all the other stuff, has nothing to do with Christianity. I, I understand that. But I like to see the symbol of these lights because it represents for Christians that the light has come into the world. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in order to understand the concept of the light which has come into the world, we have to have a little bit of background of the darkness that precedes it, the, the darkness that comes before the light, or as we say, out of darkness, light, post tanambras lux. So we have to get an idea not only of the darkness that existed at the time of Christ, but also that same darkness which exists in the world today. It's, it's ever prevalent. It is a pervasive darkness. Now, a number of years ago, I experienced a, a profound darkness, unlike anything I've ever had. Now, you have to understand, I have been spelunking in caves. <clears throat> I've been um, exploring in tombs in the Middle East. I've been lost in the forest at night without a flashlight. I've been caught in dirt storms where you couldn't see your hand if you extended it from your body. I've been sailing at night in thick fog. But the darkest experience I've ever had was actually right here in my own house. I, I, the darkest I've ever experienced was I was at my mom's house and I needed to walk home in the dark. It was so dark I couldn't see my feet. And the only way I could find my way home is I'd walk on the edge of the road, and when I could feel the grass on the side of the road, I knew I was walking off the road. And I had to keep doing this until I walked into the rockery that forms our driveway and then feel my way along the driveway. That's, that's how dark it really was. And you have to understand because, you know, in, in our culture, light is everywhere. It's hard to get away from a background light from the light from reflection of, of the cities. It's, it's hard to understand what a gift light is. And to that end, <clears throat> the gift that, that God has given us in the light of his son. So I, again, my, my point here today is that I want to probe this darkness 
I want to illuminate some of the facts of the darkness, which gives us an idea of how spectacular the light is that, that Christ has brought. Um, the text I want to look at today, you don't need to turn here, but it's from Isaiah 9, verse 2. You know it. That's why you don't have to turn it. Um, Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the dark, the deep darkness, or the shadow of darkness, of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So we have to understand a little bit about the immediate con, uh, context that Isaiah is writing to. And if we back up just a little bit to chapter 8 in Isaiah, verses 19, it says that when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to the word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land, and when they, have, when they are famished, they will become enraged, looking upward, will curse their king and their God. What Isaiah is describing here is an intense spiritual darkness, a nation that has abandoned its God. This is a nation that has turned away from worshiping the true God and is now worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech, and they're making child sacrifices and performing fertility rites. There's this darkness that's come upon them because they have rejected God. So they've gone to other sources to seek spiritual um, enlightenment, but what they are experiences, experiencing is just that they are walking in darkness. So I want to illuminate seven types of darknesses that are found in the Bible, because darkness is a very powerful symbol in Scripture. And throughout the Bible, we see darknesses that, as a symbol of those who have turned away from God. So darkness, first of all, in the Bible, <clears throat> represents evil. It represents that which is not God, anti-God, the, the absence of God. Colossians 1.13 says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. This dominion of darkness, Paul would also write in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. So the darkness that is described here in the New Testament is the darkness that we yet today are experiencing, those, specifically those who are apart from Christ. Um, secondly, darkness has been used to represent ignorance. Now, we understand that concept because even in the secular world, we talk about the dark ages. And when we talk about the dark ages, it's a historical way of looking at a particular time in the Middle Ages where there were a number of barbarian forces that were um, destroying what remained of the Western Roman Empire. It was a time when the Franks and the Vandals and the Visigoths, the Saxons, the Huns, the Vikings were all um, destroying what was left of the Roman civilization. They would come in and they would burn the libraries, they would destroy the pieces of fine art. They found that there was no use for it. So historically, we refer to these er this era as the Dark Ages only because what it brought in was largely ignorance. People weren't aware of, of scholarly work. <clears throat> and so we refer it to a time of lack of knowledge. So that's 
the secular view of darkness or the dark ages. Now, in the Bible, we mean something remarkably similar to that. We mean a time or an age or a condition in which um, God is not known, where knowing the truth of God's word or knowing the person of God, um, knowing the Bible, knowing what God says, people are ignorant of God's teaching. They're, they're ignorant of, of God. So we have this, this uh, darkness, uh, which, which is referring to a time of ignorance. It's captured very well for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 17, where it says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So this darkness represents evil that flows from us because of ignorance. It's ignorance of a, a moral light or a spiritual light. Uh, it's, just, it's an ignorance of people who stumble in the darkness. They, they don't know which way to go. They don't know how to live. They, um, that's the darkness that they live in. Isaiah 59, verse 9, captures this very well when it says, Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for lights, but all is darkness. For brightness, we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. So that's pretty potent visual imagery that Isaiah makes of people who are so morally darkened that they can't find their way home, like someone walking along a wall looking for a place where the, where the corner forms. They're, they're looking for some kind of direction. So you get this picture of people who are completely lost in this darkness. It's a, it's a darkness that, Titus, that Paul writes in Titus 3. It says, at one time, you were foolish and disobedient, uh, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. And that's a pretty dis good description of the people of our culture too, isn't it? That we hate each other and we are hated by one another and we don't know what we are doing and we don't know what is right. We don't understand what is evil and wrong from what is, from what is good and right because we are darkened, we just can't see. Now third, darkness also represents the illusion of thinking that what you do, no one else can see including God. That's why so many crimes are committed in the dark, because people are under the impression they can do this and not be seen. They can remain anonymous. The problem is, when we feel like whatever we do, God can't see. That we can hide what we are doing from God. That, that God is unable to, to perceive and to judge what we are doing. Isaiah 29, verse 15 says, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, and who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? Jesus said in John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So darkness is also used as an illustration of people who live under the illusion that God does not see and will not judge them. Now, fourth, darkness also represents a, a, a willful spiritual blindness. You can't see because you won't see. This, the, the truth is right in front of you, it's, it's obvious, um, but even if you displayed it, you are unwilling to accept it. You, 
1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So here you have the, the brightness of God's image in his son Jesus, and people can't see it. They can't see it because they won't see it. A fifth darkness is also represented by a sense of hopelessness. If hope is <clears throat> the attitude that my future is bright, hopelessness is the attitude or the feeling that my future is dark. Job displayed that very well when he said, when I, when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. So if, you, if you're in a situation like Job was, where you look forward to life and all you see is a situation of darkness, you see hopelessness, you, know, you don't see anything that, that's worth living for. You think life is dark now and it's only going to get darker. That's the kind of attitude that leads young people to suicide. They think this is dark, my life is dark, it's never been light, it's never going to be any, any lighter than it is now. There's that sense of hopelessness. And of course the ultimate hopelessness is itself death. That your life is never going to be anything and death is what waits for you. Uh, Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has done. I think people without Christ have this abiding terror that they continue to try to repress. And that, that terror is that at the end of my life, it's all over. That sooner or later, the, the, the scythe comes and it, it mows us down. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know where, but it all ends in death. And death looms starkly over us at, at every moment. And you're very much aware, if you're without Christ, that death is what terminates everything significant in your life. That when you die, all of your relationships end at that time, everything that you worked for in life becomes null and void. And in very short time, shorter than the time that you lived, you will be forgotten. People won't even know who you were Whatever you accomplish, it will all be lost. That's the fear of death. It's complete nothingness, uselessness. It's the darkness of the grave. Sixth, darkness represents judgment from God. Now, sometimes that judgment is not just moral or spiritual darkness. It's quite physical darkness. Remember one of the ten plagues that happened in Egypt was darkness, a darkness that was so prevalent it could be felt. Exodus 10, 21. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. This is a very literal darkness. This is a darkness where God says, you want to walk in darkness? You want to, you, that's the path that you choose? Let's, let me show you what, it, what, it's, what it's really like. Again, in, at the end of time, in, in Revelation chapter 16, uh, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. This is the judgment of God when he brings literal darkness on a people who choose to walk in darkness. Now finally, in the Bible, the, the seventh form of darkness is, is damnation. It is, it is the eternal separation from God. The, the absence of everything good, the absence of everything blessed, the absence of everything that, that, that is fellowship with God. It's just God's judgment and God's wrath. It's being stripped of everything positive and good that God has for his people. Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus says that, speaks of, uh, of hell. He says it's being thrown outside into the darkness 
where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how Jesus describes hell. So these represent the biblical dimensions of darkness, and that's what Isaiah is referring to in 9-2 when he talks about people walking in darkness. They're, they're a mental darkness, a, a moral darkness, a spiritual darkness, an emotional darkness to be without hope and without God in the world. And the point that I want to make is that even today, even now, apart from Jesus Christ, this same darkness is over our world today. And people get all alarmed when they read the news and they say, oh my goodness, the world's coming to an end. The world is not getting darker. The world has always been dark. Ever since the fall, there's been darkness. There's a, we shouldn't be surprised that the darkness which Satan brought in the world is ever present in the world today. God's people live in a time where the world persists in living in this, this darkness, partly because of their, their willfulness and partly because Satan has blinded their eyes. And then, as Jesus said, what we have then is the blind leading the blind, those in darkness leading others in the darkness. Well, that's why the, the, the beauty, the, the astonishment of the light of Christmas is, is so beautiful, where, where, talk, where Isaiah talks about this being a great light that dawns on us. So if we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of the death, a light has dawned. So this, Isaiah is predicting this great light who, as we look back on the fact, we see that the light he was predicting was God's son, Jesus Christ, that he is the great light. Uh, John puts it like this, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. So Isaiah is giving this prophecy to a people who are currently walking in deep darkness, morally, mentally, spiritually, and actually, and he's predicting this great light that will come. Fast forward then to the night that the shepherds are out watching their sheep. Probably not December 24th. More likely it was in March because that was lambing season. It doesn't matter. And we celebrate any particular time because we are acknowledging that at some point in time, God sent his son into the world. So here are the shepherds, and they're out in the field watching their sheep, probably because they're lambing. And they don't have light. There's not ambient light from the cities. It's dark. It's as dark as dark gets. Maybe they had a fire. That'd be the only source of light that they would have. But here they are. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, we read this passage during worship time. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Again, it must have been very dark. They're just sitting around, as far as we know. And suddenly, the darkness is ripped apart not by some faint glow, but by some radiant, glorious light of this otherworldly creature that suddenly interrupts their calm night. And what's the reaction of the shepherds? Well, the ESV says that they were terrified. I like the King James Version. They were sore afraid. That's cool, isn't it? Sore afraid. They were terrified by the presence of this otherworldly being interrupting their otherwise predictable evening. And of course, 
It must be angel 101. Every time you appear to a human, the first thing you have to say is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because the angel here, just like Jesus, his coming does not represent God's judgment. His coming does not represent God's anger. His coming represents the, a, a message of salvation. This is wonderful news. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to terrorize you. I've got really wonderful news. I mean, just picture it. The, there's this radiant light around this otherworldly individual. The shepherds are terrified looking at him, and here he comes with words that change history. I, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior's been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. He'll be a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So this is the whole point of Christmas. This baby which is born in the manger. This is the who, this is the what, and this is the why of, of all of salvation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And the angel calls it good news to, of great joy to all people. That's why in Isaiah, the very next passage, uh, the very next verse to where we left off in Isaiah 9-2 is, therefore they rejoice as people rejoice in the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. This is a cause for great celebration, of great happiness, of hilarity, that Jesus is born to the world is the source of limitless great joy. The angel plainly said, this is a savior born to you. This is a savior born to every one of you individually, every person, every place, every time, even as far as 2023. Yet the angel makes very clear that this is the, the one that the world has looked forward to. This is the baby that is, that is being born who is Christ the Lord. Christ means anointed one. Why is he anointed? Because that was part of the promise of the covenant that was given to David. David is anointed as the king, and Christ will be the anointed son of David, Messiah, Savior. So he's the anointed one. Christ is, this, is anointed. He's fulfilling the covenant of David. He's also the, the Messiah, the Savior. He's the Lord. See, that's the mystery, that God in flesh, this incarnation. The shepherds couldn't have understood that. In fact, you know what else? What else? I, I don't think the angels understood that. I don't think any created being will ever fully understand this mystic union of God coming in flesh. I don't think if we waited for all eternity and we studied this and worked it out, we would ever understand the concept of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Here's the announcement the angel gives to us. What an astonishing message. And we're still talking about one angel at this point. And then what happens next? Here comes that word, suddenly. Suddenly. I'm not half the man I used to be. <laughs> suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appears with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace on those whom his favor rests. That's what we're celebrating tonight, peace between God and man. Why do we need peace? Because we're at war with him apart from Christ. We, this darkness, remember, this is not a, a passive 
quiet kind of darkness. This is a darkness that represents open rebellion against God the King. From Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, the death on the cross. So present yourselves holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The point of Christ's coming is not simply so you get saved. It's much bigger than that. It involves that you are no longer hostile towards God and he's not hostile towards you. There is peace. There is reconciliation. There is love and familialness. Not just that you get rescued out of hell. There is the end of warfare between God and his people and it comes through Jesus Christ. Revelation, or excuse me, Romans 5, chapter 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the angels are dispatched by God to celebrate at his birth and to bring in this eternal light. Now we go back again to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the next passage you're familiar with. We just jump from 9.2 to 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You're very familiar with these titles because if you've been through more than one Christmas, you've heard it more than one time. Every Christmas you hear these titles. The interesting thing about these titles is that they all incorporate the supernatural facet with a natural thing. And they're blending the supernatural with the natural. That's the essence of this mystic union, the incarnation. The first he says is that he will be called Wonderful Counselor. This doesn't mean he's a particularly good advisor. Wonderful, in this case, means miracle worker, wonder-working counselor. You have the natural, the human, the counsel, and the supernatural. He is the wonder-working, the miraculous counselor. And then the second one is... Uh, a mighty God. Lots of people are called mighty. There's nothing supernatural about mighty. Gideon was called mighty. God addressed men in the terms of mighty. But this one who is mighty is also paired with mighty what? Not mighty warrior, mighty God. So you have this, this incarnation of the great God, mighty God. And then the next one is everlasting Father. Again, Father is a very common familial term. But we fathers are not everlasting. Again, you're blending the eternal God with the concept of, of Father. And then finally, Prince of Peace. He's not just one who is the, the governor of, of his estate, but this is the Prince who brings peace between a hostile God and a hostile mankind. He's bringing this peace between us. And so as this light dawned, the question that comes before us today is, are you going to run towards the light or turn from the light? That's the essence of the, 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 the Christmas message. Jesus said in John 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light 
so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 8, uh, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what? So two things, really. First of all, don't grieve over this present darkness that you see as though something new is happening in the world, as if the world is suddenly getting darker. It's not. It's been going on a very long time. It's, it's grievous in and of itself, but don't think we've entered some new phase of, of darkness on the planet. There's been darkness ever since the fall. But yet God is able to break into this darkness to shine in a beautiful way in the midst of this darkness. Secondly, um, I just want to challenge you, if you're here today and you're not saved, to allow yourself to be drawn to the light of Christ and not to turn away and prefer the darkness. Allow yourself to be drawn as a moth to the flame, to be inexplicably drawn to God through Christ and to understand that, the, that only by Christ's glorious death and accepting that death in your place can you ever really enter into the light and to avoid the darkness of sin and, and of hell and of, and of death. So this Christmas, enjoy the lights. You don't have to defend. We understand they're not Christmas symbols, but they certainly can represent for us the, the amazing Christmas message. Enjoy the lights in their various form, but remember that the true light that they bear witness to is the light that God has sent in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, this uh, Christmas I pray that we uh, worship you through your son Jesus and we thank you that you gave us this great gift of salvation through Christ, that he had to be a man in order to suffer and to die, but he had to be God in order to be perfect and, and blameless and adequate offering in our place. How could this possibly have happened? How could the eternal God enter into his creation? How could the the God of timelessness enter into time? How is it that the creator still has a body somewhere today which is coming back again? That's an amazing thing. And though we don't fathom it all, we embrace it as true because you are a truth-telling God. God, we thank you for these truths. We pray that they, the reality of these things changes the way we live. In Jesus' name. Amen.